Let's turn now in our Bibles to Genesis 50, Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26. Genesis 50, 15 to 26. And with this message today, we will come to the conclusion of this study on the family that we've been doing here in Genesis. And I'm going to, I'm going to traverse over to the minor prophet Amos next week and the weeks to follow. Never preached from Amos here, and so we shall begin a series from Amos come next week. So let us let us now attend to Genesis 50, where we begin reading with verse 15, and we'll read through to the end of the book. Hear now the word of the Lord. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am for am I in the place of God? But for you, you meant evil for me, against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelled in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Macher, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land uh, which, we, which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath, from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Uh, we come today in our study of the family to the end of the families as they were recorded of the patriarchs of, Egypt, of Israel. And we find here that Joseph goes to his death. He's just had his father die. The end of Joseph's life is telescoped together in a few, very few verses because the Bible has reflected on and focused upon the great things of Joseph's life. Uh, but at this point, Joseph and his life and his people, they were in a kind of a holding pattern. They were in Egypt. Their main job in Egypt was to reproduce, reproduce offspring, so that they would, they would number in the hundreds of thousands, even small millions, by the time that they returned to Israel. So as it were, 
uh, the Lord God in his sovereignty, he, um, he uh, turned down the faucet, you might say, of their progeny, of their children. And uh, they had gone into Egypt as a 70 people, and now we see that they will leave Egypt four generations later or more with many, many more. Uh, it's just amazing that uh, we find ourselves in the West today mourning the fact that we are not producing enough children to maintain our population. Same thing is going on in, in Europe, even worse. And so this is a kind of subject that is in the public air, into the public debate and discussion. What, what does it take to maintain a population? Well, in Israel's case, because God's hand of blessing was upon them, because he had these great plans, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He needed, uh, he needed a, a, a great number of people that they could form this new nation to take its place among all the other nations of the world. God had his people before the rise of Israel, but he did not have a nation. And so at this point, Joseph in Egypt, the, the great the prime minister of Egypt, he rules there uh, after in the aftermath of the famine. We don't know exactly how long in terms of the twists and the turns of his life. His influence evidently uh, ebbed, or flowed, I should say, as, as he grew older. Uh, but the main focus at this point seems to be upon the children of Israel simply reproducing, developing themselves and their families, and, and that sort of thing. And so at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph uh, going to be with the Lord, and we see him point his his people to take up his body in the same way that Jacob had asked uh, uh, for his life and to, to be buried in the cave at Machpir like uh, all the other patriarchs have done. So uh, we find this this odd, uh, odd passage here at the end that we're focusing upon, and yet it's one of the greatest passages in the, all of the scriptures having to do with the doctrine of the providence of God. That is, that God takes care of his people, and that some people thinking about the doctrine of providence and thinking about God taking care of his people, they write out their own doctrine of providence. That is, that God, if God is going to bless us, that he's going to bless us every single moment, that he's going to keep us from all evil, that our foot cannot stumble at all, that we cannot have any kind of an encounter with tragedy in our lives. If God really loves us, then he will take care of us, and if he takes care of us, then our way should be smooth. That's the, that's the kind of the non-believing or non-biblical view of providence. But we see here that at, the, at one of the points where Israel's history was the most um, convulsed in terms of evil and the trial, namely the selling of Joseph into slavery, to selling him to these passing nomads that took him to Egypt, where he became a, a servant and actually in jail in the greatest culture at the time, namely the Egyptian kingdom of the pharaohs, we see that God used this time for tremendously positive circumstances. So and, and we cannot in our lives, when we find ourselves when we find ourselves assaulted by the conflicts of this world or by the tribulations, by the persecutions of men, we cannot despair or think that we are somehow outside of God's will because we saw the very opposite take place
Joseph's life, and here it's celebrated. Now the occasion of the celebration is the fact that Jacob dies, and uh, all the brothers, the, the 11 other brothers beside Joseph, they are all worried to death. They're, they are conflicted with worry uh, over the fact that they thought maybe their brother Joseph remembered all of their cruelty to him. And now that Jacob was gone, there would be no reason, there would be no superior over Joseph's head that Joseph could do whatever he wanted. He could take vengeance upon his brothers. So uh, I, I wouldn't have thought of this, but this was probably the most conflicted funeral ever, you know, because they've gone up to uh, southern Israel to bury Jacob's body. But what are the brothers thinking about? <laughs> they're, all, they're all thinking about their, the, the, the fruits of justice coming to their door. They're thinking about the vengeance of Joseph, which they, they don't really know much about. They know that they, are, they deserve to be, uh, get the vengeance of God or the, the justice of God because of what they did. They know that they have not been receiving it, but now they're worried about it. And we see that in the very first verse, it says that Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead and said, perhaps Joseph will hate us uh, and may actually repay us for all the evil we did for him. So the good thing is that they understood that they had done evil. So many times in our life, we don't really know what's right and wrong, especially outside of the Christian church, where the ethics of God are on full display. People uh, dream up the craziest things, like I prayed about in the prayer, that uh, uh, felons, that in the Bible it says that, that incorrigible felons who repeat their offenses, repeat their crimes over and over and over again, that they're deserving of death. It's one of the only, one of the few reasons for the death penalty, incorrigibility. By this, the Bible teaches that uh, where men are incorrigible, the human society does not have the capacity to deal with them. And so God says, get rid of them, execute them. Uh, that's, way too, that's way too cruel, according to modern thinking. Uh, we, cannot, we cannot do that. It's impossible for us. We need to be nicer than God. And so we keep these people around. They continue to do crimes. They continue to kill people, lie, cheat, steal. Rampage, rape, steal, uh, much money is taken up in all of these deviations when we deviate from the way the Lord told us to deal with these things. But uh, his brothers here in this case realized that they really did wrong. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for people to have a sense of, of what's really right and wrong. In, in our lives, too often we feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty about, and then we don't feel guilty about those things for which we should feel guilt. What are the great enterprises of Christian sanctification? <laughs> Learning the difference between true right and true wrong. People are way too unconcerned about worship when, when they think about what they're doing right and wrong. Way too unconcerned about worship and about their the, the positive things that they owe to the Lord. The fact that they ought to really enjoy him and be thirst about him and bring that worship to him uh, accordingly every Lord's Day. They're relatively unconcerned about that. But then they often get all conflicted about uh, other things that uh, have nothing to do with real virtue and, uh, and sin. And so in this case, the brothers un understand their situation <clears throat> They're 
worried about it. And uh, what's interesting is that they all are in this as a union. It's not just one of them that comes and says, have you guys thought about the fact that now that Jacob's gone, that maybe uh, Joseph might vent his wrath against us? And the others say, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. No, they're, they're all thinking about this because they realize how how uh, miserable they were in their treatment of their brother. They realize how awful they were. They realize how their actions were utterly decrepit and wicked and without grace. Now, isn't it amazing that we can treat each other that way, even within the confines of the Christian church? That's what, these, that's what the patriarchal family represented at that time. They were a family, but they were also the extant visible church of the day. And while the, the pagans were running around Mongolia or outer, uh, 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 outer Europe or the eastern, further east in Mesopotamia, while they were doing their own thing, here we find the people of God, and they just weren't uh, under uh, really the control or the dominion of God's way of thinking. And so um, here, as, jo as Jacob dies, the brothers uh, come and... Um, their fear is pervasive, uh, powerful. Uh, I, 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 the one I wanted to bring out here in terms of the family is how we oftentimes as families, we have these sensibilities or these convictions which lay latent in our minds and our hearts. Now, and, and yet uh, they may not have anything to do with reality. Now, in this case, this was a pervasive fear that possessed Jacob's children, they were really troubled by this. It was kind of a, uh, a neurotic fear, if you will, of, of God's wrath and God's judgment, and yet they didn't do anything about it. They just let it lay there. We, oft, we so often do this as families. We can develop family sensibilities, family mentalities, if you will, and we don't really take them to the Lord and ask the Lord, are these things really, really true? Are these things that we're worried about, or are these things that we're not worried about, are they really according to your mind, O oh Lord? And so we need to take the Bible, what it says to us, and try to apply that to our lives. And, and we, we see that that was going on in a sense before Jacob died, but now that he, uh, now that he's gone, um, we can really see it. And uh, we can we can see to ourselves, or we can draw ourselves up to the fact that it's always good to include God in our thinking and evaluate our lives based upon uh, the living God. So first of all, we see this fear that was uh, that was had possessed Israel, and this comes out when Jacob when Jacob dies. So the brothers go to Jacob to go to Joseph, and they. They speak to him this way, and they, they, uh, to their credit, they realize that they've made a true offense against God in this respect. Um, they ask for forgiveness from him, and in verse 18, we see that they, they, they prostrate themselves before him, and they say, Behold, we are your servants. Now, the reason that that's significant is that's what they rebelled against originally. Remember when Jacob, when Joseph had the dream that uh, that uh, there were 12 sheep, 12 sheep presenting the 12 sons of Israel. And he said, your sheep's bowed down to my sheep. In other words, they're, 
their, the bundle of their glory bowed down to him. And that really roiled them. That really upset them. That really made them jealous. And now here at this point, they, really, they have been taken from that place in their lives to the place where they all cast themselves down before Joseph and realized that they had done wrong and that uh, God's providence had brought about this teaching lesson that they were supposed to bow down before him. Why were they supposed to bow down before him? Because God had used Joseph in a mighty way that they had not foreseen. Because God had put certain superiorities in Joseph. On one hand, they were equal. They were all the brothers, they were all the sons of Jacob. So they were all equal in many respects. And yet, God had added his differences, his blessings to, to Joseph's life, to the sons of Joseph, where uh, some of them came out in the blessing, blessings upon Judah, uh, and Benjamin, and uh, Joseph especially. But here we see that uh, uh, it was from God that these things had come. So oftentimes when we develop jealousies in our lives, it's over things that God has done to other people in a good sense. God has given somebody else a talent that we don't have, that, but what, that we would like to have. Or God has... Uh, ordained that we should have some grievance in our lives, some difficulty, some tragedy that we that we would rather be without. And so we look and we say, why can't our lives be like this family's over here or that family's over there? Why must I go through this persecution? Why must I have this difficulty in my life? Because it came from God. Because God is sovereign. And we must recognize this and know this. And recognizing this and knowing this puts us at great peace because we know that God did not do do that to us or God has not brought us to this place to destroy us, but to make us and to strengthen us and to bless us. And uh, we forget that this world of ours here is just the springboard for all eternity. And in all, inter- in all eternity, when we find ourselves closer to God's throne or uh, exposed to a fuller uh, dispensation of his blessing than other people that we see in his midst up there, and we realize, well, this is because of this thing that we went through in this life, the persecution or the whatever. And so there, there'll be time to rejoice, and we'll see God's goodness. We'll see his hand of blessing even in the things that we have done wrong. Well, Joseph makes a prophecy here. He he explains in verse 19, he explains exactly what the situation is. And he doesn't mince his words. He he finds fault where there's fault, and yet he also shouts out or proclaims God's blessing where there is blessing. He says to them, he says, do not be afraid. First of all, He's, he's, even though they have offended and they, they sold him, they could, have, they could have sold him into death virtually because of what they did to him. He says, do not be afraid. God's people are very often able to turn the other cheek in such situations because they recognize the sovereignty of God. And so Joseph turns the other cheek. He says, do, do not be afraid. He consoles his brothers even in their guilt. He, and then he asks this theological question, for am I in the place of God? In other words, am I, am, I the, am I the great judge of the universe? And yet, when we hear our neighbors and others complaining about this and that, 
they're often, they often put themselves in the place of God, assuming that their sense of things is God's sense of things. That their view of justice is God's view of justice. That their view of injustice is God's view of injustice and the like. But Je Joseph says, no, that's not the case. God, God may have an entirely different idea in mind. And he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. So Jacob or Joseph recognizes that there's every reason for the brothers to be afraid, that there's every reason for God's justice to fall upon them and his wrath. But he says God meant it for good. Well, what, what did God base this goodness upon? Why did God make it so that they wouldn't die in the famine? Was it, the Bible asked that question itself, was it because they did something good that they were more meritorious than other people? The Bible says no. In many ways they were more evil based upon all that they knew. But God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will, I will bless those whom I want to bless. The great hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters, the great hope of Jesus Christ, is because of the pure goodness and mercy of God. And it goes way beyond our capacity to understand. Why has God, to the children in the church this morning, why has God given you parents? That when they vowed to stay together, when they vowed to be married, and they vowed to be parents to you, that they've kept those vows. That they've maintained the course. Well, why is it that you are blessed and so many other children don't have a mom and a dad that's around them to study them, to supply them, to help them, to bless them? Why is it? Because of the absolute sovereign mercy of God. And all of us need to take that into our mind's eye and do the best with it that we can, recognizing it, cherishing it, and then uh, working it in and through the warp and the woof of our lives so that we uh, repay the Lord according to his goodness. That we reflect the bounty that God has held out for us. And so... <clears throat> Um, Joseph here speaks of this doctrine of providence that very often in this world um, we, we will see evil things or negative things happen to us, but they will be for good, and that God uses the even the evil things. He certainly uses the blessed things in our lives for good, but he sometimes and often uses the evil things in our lives for good too. So you think of the greatest evil that you can imagine in your life, the hardest things that, that God has brought into your life for you to traverse or to, to go overcome, the hardest things, and you will see in them the wonderful blessing of God. Uh, this alone encourages us and inspires us to great worship of his name because he is worthy to be praised and his works in the call to worship this morning it mentioned the, the word the goodness of God in his his nature, but then also his works. And in both of those, the God it would inspire us to great blessings. And so I remember when I was a young uh, theological student and I came across this these verses, I discovered them because I was reading the catechisms and the scriptures that were given for the catechisms on the providence of God. And uh, these passages having to do with the negative providences of God on jo Joseph's life and his brothers turning into the positive providences of God in their lives. 
uh, this, these were two of the verses that were quoted and were very, um, were very uh, formidably, very publicly in the doctrine of God's providence. So um, we, we cherish them. And in verse 21 it says, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your loved little ones. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This this attitude of Joseph's, this understanding of Joseph's, is manifested most significantly and wonderfully in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there he took the, his own crucifixion. The hatred that the Israelites poured out upon him in his incarnation, in time, his coming uh, to save us from our sins, Instead of rejoicing over this like we did momentarily on Palm Sunday, instead of rejoicing over that, we crucified him. We hated him. We gambled over his garments. We um, we uh, tried to shame him on the cross, asking what, why why he would claim to be righteous when he was enduring this death for unrighteousness, this death, this capital punishment that signaled to the world that he was worthy to be executed publicly in this most shameful way of crucifixion. And yet, uh, he takes all these negatives and he works it into the most wonderful, the most wonderful development of all human history, namely the possibility of salvation, not just the possibility but through the work of the third person of the Trinity, his spirit, the actuality of our salvation, as the Holy Spirit takes us, convicts us of our sin, applies the sands of the gospel upon our raw, broken, wounded hearts, works faith in us then that we, we go from looking at our sin to looking at his love of us and his provision for us, in terms of both sparing sin and righteousness, and the Holy Spirit brings these things to us, and we He takes us, He re, He re, uh, remakes us, He regenerates us, and He takes us and He makes us all of a sudden able to see this gospel. If we if we are not born again, the Gospel of John says we cannot see the gospel in the sense of really understanding it or taking it upon ourselves. But in the Holy Spirit, in God's grace. We see it, we come to faith, we rejoice in Him. And all of these things are worked out through this most awful thing in human history. The most awful thing works onto the most wonderful thing. Understanding the fall in all of its depth and degradation works out to understanding the gospel in all of its wonder and glory. And so Joseph's life here um, was an example for what we would see with the life of the Lord Jesus. Now, the last thing I want to focus on here is probably the least, the least significant thing, but it's, it's significant enough that God brings it out in His Word, so we ought to pay attention to it, because it's one of those obscure ideas that helps us a great deal in our Christian life, and that is the idea here of Joseph's involvement <clears throat> I don't know how many of you noticed that as we read through it, but it says in verse 26, as Joseph tells them that he's dying, and uh, 
he elicits an oath from them in verse 25 to take him and bury him where they have done with the other patriarchs. And so it says then that Joseph died being 110 years old, and they, what, embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This goes back to the third verse of this chapter, chapter 50, verse, five, verse 3, or 2, 2 and 3, where it says that Jacob, uh, or that Joseph commanded his servants to embalm his father. And uh, now the reason that this is so interesting is because, again, we have these views of things in our minds, and, uh, and the, one of the places where we have the most debates today has to do with burial customs. And uh, if you, the, the Israelites did not embalm their people before the captivity in Egypt. So was it wrong for Jacob or Joseph to do this to his, with his father's body or with his, to command it to be done with his body. Yeah, for those of us that are prone to think that the more restrictions we can bring upon ourselves, the more godly we are, um, which is kind of a negative way of thinking, but we sometimes adopt that. We, we, it's a kind of a false view of sanctification. The more, the more discomfort we can have in this world, then the more sanctified we are. No, the sanctification is written out and defined by God himself. What is, what is right, what is bad, what is holy, what is unholy. In this case, the, the Egyptians, they were pagan people. They did not worship the Lord. There were many aspects, many dimensions of their practice and their life which were given over to Satan. One of the strange things in this regard was that when Joseph married, that he was given the daughter of, a, of the, one of the high priests of Egypt to marry. And we, we looked at that and we said, well, is that proper? Should he not have been worried about doing that? Well, we know that since God ordered it, that it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad thing. It was, more, it was more indicative of the fact that God was going to bring elect people out of the pagan peoples of the world. And so Asinapha, uh was that, that woman that... Uh, that, uh, yes, she'd been born in a pagan family. Her father was even a high priest of Egypt, one of the most, in some senses, one of the most satanic people in the world. And yet, God sanctified her through this marriage to Joseph. And everything of their marriage, everything that we know about their marriage, indicates that God used it for good. That she was not a thorn in his side, like some of the earlier women of the patriarchal family were thorns in the sides of their husbands and their wives. And so, but in this case, God used it for good. And in this case, we see that uh, that not everything in our lives is uh, is ethically oriented according to the direct direct command of the Lord. There are many things that God leaves open to us to discover, to develop ourselves, to see which is the best way, this way or that way. So God did not hold the, uh, the paganism of Egypt against all of their developments, all of their cultural discoveries. And that's very helpful for us to understand that principle. That's one of the, that was one of the burdens of my book, my book Lifestyle, to show that there are two, two uh, dimensions of this world. There is a dimension where God has defined it up very carefully. Those things are uh, developing and flowing from the Lord's Day, from the Sabbath, and then those things during the six days of the week. God did not God did not command us never to build a building above three stories. You know? It's architecture. 
so you know it's bad if you build a, a building like the Empire State Building. It would be really bad if you built that building and you didn't do it well. So that two years after it was built, and there were people up there on the 30th and 40th and 50th floors, and the building toppled over and they all died. That would be bad. But if you, if you do it well, if you do it according to the laws of physics and these kinds of things, I mean the laws of architecture, uh, then then that can be good. And so evidently, uh, the, the Egyptians, when they learned about embalming, and this was something that they developed within their culture, when they learned about the idea of embalming, this was something that, is, as, as uh, Jacob saw this, and as he understood it, and then as he taught Joseph about it, uh, this was something that um, that they deemed, as patriarchal men, they deemed that this was really an advance. This was better. There were reasons for it. There's not a whole chapter in the Bible that goes into why we should be embalmed at this point, but we see that these, there, there were reasons that sanctified or justified the use of this this idea, even though it came from paganism. And Jesus in the New Testament tells us, he said the pagans of this world often do things better than the, the, the faithful. Just because you're faithful doesn't mean you're going to do everything right or have the best insights into things. So, uh, in terms of the Bible, you know, um, there was never something called life insurance before modern times. And yet most of us have decided that that's, that's a good thing to do. It protects us. And years when we don't have as much money, it protects us against the worst kinds of things happening. And, and all through life, there are these discoveries that we can make. And it's the, it's the poor man that thinks he only needs to study on his Sabbath obedience or his Sabbath observance or his Sabbath insights, his theology. It's the, it's the impoverished man that thinks that he only needs to study theology and the rest of life can be uh, cast off as a consequence of his piety. No! God says, six days shalt thou labor. Six days shalt thou try to take dominion over your life and all the creation that I've set before you. And if you do that, you do another good work. You do a good work to do good theology, but you do another good work to develop the six days of your life and the world in which I've created you. And God has created us in such a world that he's placed little gold mines everywhere in the, in the world. Little, little precious discoveries that we can make of diamonds and gold. Those are the physical things. But this whole this whole world of digital logic, uh, the the uh, the IT uh, and, and intelligence that we can gain from merely constructing this um, abstract world of numbers, these positives, these ones and these zeros, putting them together in a code that then can drive a machine. <laughs> These are wonderful things. We've got a number of men in the church here that are working in that world now. We're providing employment for them. It's, it's taken so much of the drudgery of this world. And it's all something that God had just hidden in the creation. The, the possibility of these things. The potentiality of these things. He hidden in the creation for us to discover in our cultural, locational lives. God is so good. And his goodness is so full and so complex. And we see that brought out for us in this last kind of incidental mention of the burial uh, customs that uh, we find here in, in the book. 
it also mentions a coffin here. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that, but it's the same kind of thing. The, the, it, before this time, uh, most people were buried in, simply in a shroud, in, a, in cloth. They'd be placed in a cave, wrapped in a shroud, and then their bodies would dry, uh, dry, uh, dry out and uh, be des fully desiccated at some point and then turn into dust. But from, from this time on, coffins were used uh, by uh, Christian people, by believing people. Uh, and, but yet, that was not commanded, so, you know, in a sense, you can do what you want. Use your, use your burlap bag, or, <laughs> or the, 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 the more fancy box. But isn't it interesting the way God directs us through the scriptures? And um, I, I just call your attention to this and rejoice in it, for God is good. God was good to Joseph. God was good to Israel. God is good to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that, that we would obtain thy wisdom from passages like this, that we would see how thy providence is holy and good and true, always working for the establishment and for the triumph of thy people, thy church in this world. We only pray, O Lord, that thy workings would become even more powerful. That thou wouldst work to bring the glory of Jesus Christ to faithful families today, even as you blessed faithful families back then. Even against their own willpower, against their own sensibilities. They thought it was the most wonderful thing or the most precious thing that they could do when they sold their brother into slavery. We have a whole generation here of people who think that the most precious and the most wonderful thing they can do is to abort their babies. Millions of babies have been aborted by this bloodthirsty clan that we call modernity. And yet we know, O oh Lord, that according to thy will, that all of these things will be justified ultimately in Christ, that wickedness will be destroyed, and that righteousness will be celebrated forever and ever and ever in the heavenly places before thy throne at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly Father, according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.